That intro is just so buttery. Sean's really feeling himself on this. <laughs> Welcome back to the Aware Audio Experience. Today we have a two-part series with Dr. Leon Segal, a very intelligent man, and we're excited to have him sharing some of his wisdom. This podcast is really going to touch on the connection between meditation and how it can be a gateway to enable your creativity and help you solve complex problems. So very interesting topic and awesome to connect with an expert like leon yeah this one was really good so we're excited for you guys to take a listen and as always all of our content is funded by aware apparel so if you enjoy any of the stuff that we put out please check out our website aware-apparel.com a-w-e-a-r-apparel.com and support our cause We're also working on the next men's line and we're super excited to bring you some new merchandise hopefully in the next few months so stay tuned for that until then let's get right into it this is part one of our two-part series with dr leon seagal Thanks for joining us. We're excited to be joined by Dr. Leon Seagal. You have incredible experience and we're, we're looking forward to learning from you. Leon, you've worked in a wide variety of industries and organizations and countries leading innovation and creative thought. And that spans working in the Air Force, working with NASA, working with um, the famous IDO consulting firm, and now leading initiatives with innovation ship as a, as a founder and director, among other things. So we're excited to make some correlations and connections between the work that you're doing with creativity and linking that to meditation and how that might be a window to open up some creative thought. So thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to exploring this ground with you. Hmm. Yeah. Where do you guys want to start? It would be cool to start with the first time we met you. It was like a brainstorming creative session. What would you call that encounter for that parking lot brainstorming session? That, that was a, a definitely a brainstorming session, a kind of collaborative creative session where the goal is to bring a group of people together and generate as many ideas as possible in the shortest amount of time. In a sense, that's the goal of any brainstorming session. It's about expanding and diverging and including as many options as possible. Afterwards comes the, in a sense, harder work phase of synthesizing, converging, filtering, all the other stuff that comes with it. Hmm. But that first expansive step is really what we did that day with that team. It was very expansive. For context, Reed and I were asked to represent the, I guess, younger generation in this brainstorming session for the future of parking lots. And it was unlike any brainstorming session that I've ever attended. Just tons of like post-it notes, ideas being shared, collaborations, and you led the whole thing. And um, it was beautiful. You were pulling all these ideas down together. And I can only imagine what went on after that was done, when you had to organize and synthesize all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, you know, the job is really, or my job is to just create the conditions for that to happen. And what I've learned over the years is that people love being creative. Mm. And given the opportunity, given the safety, given the right kind of mindset and framework, 
then you get, and uh, you know, some people are more creative than others. Uh, but if you can just have everybody in the room be at their creative edge, then sometimes the ideas come from the least expected corner. Mm. You know, you might have somebody who sits very, very quietly throughout the session and just says one thing. And even for that person, you know, he or she might not be very articulate or very even clear about their own idea. But somebody else might jump on that and build on it. And very mm. soon, the entire conversation gets kind of shifted in a new direction that nobody expected. Mm. So the job is to really enable creativity to come forth. And for me, creativity is kind of if you when someone's creative, they're expressing themselves in the most authentic way they can. Hmm. And that's what we want to allow people to do. So hence the, the setup and all the rest are kind of rituals to allow that to happen. So the post-it notes and the whiteboards and the Sharpies and all of those things we dance around with, you know, shamans used to use feathers and smoke and charcoal and things like that we use post-its and sharpies and <laughs> whatever the ritual shifted yeah <laughs> maybe we should rewind it a little bit and kind of you know i gave you this shotgun introduction and there's a lot to unpack here so maybe you can tell us yeah a bit about your story and and how how you ended up where you are and um i mean this resume is ridiculous and i hope Mine one day reflects yeah. an ounce of that. So maybe you can tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, well, it's it's been a, an interesting journey, which can be looked at both, you know, as many turns off the main path at different points. But at the same time, if, if you really look underneath, there's like a thread that that weaves throughout everything that I've experienced. I grew up, I was born in Israel, grew up in Israel. Uh, spent three years in my teen years. My my parents moved to Japan in the late 60s. Uh, my father's an architect, so he wanted to study Japanese architecture. And my mother wanted to study judo. Mm -hmm. So they took two kids and a couple of suitcases and moved to Japan, which was a great, great, great adventure for me. Back to Israel, finished high school there, and like every good Israeli kid, went into the army. Hmm. I went into the Air Force, went to flight school, finished that, spent six years in the Air Force flying uh, what are called attack helicopters. After doing that, I left at age 24, studied music for a year, and then looked for a job and found a job as a consulting kind of expert, domain expert pilot. I was working here in Fort Worth with Bell Helicopters who were trying to sell a helicopter to the Israeli army. Mm. And they wanted an Israeli pilot to help them design it or design the cockpit. So I did that for a couple of years and then realize that I can very quickly become a very big expert in a very narrow field of kind of military aviation mm -hmm. and decided that wasn't for me. That I both the, the military part 
definitely I, I'd gone beyond that. And even the aviation part seemed a bit narrow. I was always just more interested in, in people. And so I looked around. I wanted to go to school and study something. And the closest thing I found to kind of a bridge between people and design and innovation was this area called human factors. And I went to a couple of the leading schools here, and one of them was University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, went there and ended up getting a PhD in cognitive psychology and human factors wrote a proposal for my PhD, which NASA got and invited me out here to California, which is where I am now, to do my finish my PhD and work as a researcher designer in Moffett Field. And uh, there's a big research center here in Mountain View for those who've been up here. So I moved from Illinois to California and worked for a couple of years as a researcher designer at NASA, working primarily. My uh, area of focus was crew collaboration and how the design of cockpits can impact the collaboration between crew members. And I was working on the design of cockpits of future aircraft and spacecraft. And together with another researcher from NASA, we opened a small consulting firm. And it was this is the early 90s. So we were working with Silicon Valley that was just kind of waking up to this whole notion of human centered design, human factors, stuff like that. And then ended up doing a project for a young company called IDEO. At the time, it was really just so IDEO has its own history, but it had just turned from a more engineering firm into a more kind of holistic innovation company. And I did a, a project with them and I just fell in love with the people, with the mindset, with the atmosphere. The whole thing just seemed like I came home. So I left NASA and I sold my part of the company to my partner. That company, by the way, is still running. It's called Interface Analysis. And it's one of the leading companies in the world that does FDA certification for medical products and the human factors design of medical products. So left that, joined IDO, worked there for four years in the headquarters in Palo Alto. I led the human factors group there in Palo Alto and then decided so in the meanwhile, somewhere along that path, I got married, had one son and decided with my wife that we want to go back to Israel. So in 1998, I moved back to Israel and opened an IDEO studio in Tel Aviv uh, and ran that for a few years. The, the height of it, we were 12 people, did some really wonderful work in the Middle East in collaboration also with IDEO Munich and IDEO London and actually also IDEO Palo Alto. We just it, it's a big global network. And then in 2012, my wife and I and by now we had two sons decided to move back to California, move to the North Bay. We're in Sebastopol now. 
and I founded this company called Innovation Ship that focuses on solving problems and helping people have a more kind of creative mindset uh, using a process called design thinking, which is now everybody talks about it. At the time, we were kind of developing it at IDEO in the 90s through the different projects we did there. And currently, I run Innovation Ship. I've got a few partners that's the core, but we really rely on a kind of almost a global network of primarily ex-IDO people. And what we do is help clients solve challenges and by doing that, guiding them through the experience of what design thinking is about. And so it becomes also a learning journey where people kind of adopt a mindset and a way of looking at the world that for us revolves around three things, creativity, collaboration, and empathy. Those are like the three key ingredients that we try to share with people and help people adopt as a way of approaching innovation, problem solving, creative explorations, and so forth. So here we are, 2020. <laughs> well, that's incredible leon i mean your story is really inspiring and i mean just just the sentence of it was at that time i left nasa i mean not a lot of people get to say that so that's that's very impressive and exciting i'd be curious in that story where where's your connection to meditation and and mindfulness is that part of your lifestyle is that something you've newly adopted or something that you've used in the past or maybe it's not something that you you lean on much um, does that factor in at all? You know, it's really interesting because, yes, it's part of my life. Hmm. And yes, they, so this company, I have Innovation Ship. The tagline is Innovation Made Personal. And the intention behind that is to say that, you know, if you become more creative, if you become more empathic, if you become more collaborative, it's not going to end when you leave work at 5 p.m. Hmm. It just touches everything you do in your life, whether it's collaborating with a friend or helping your children do their homework or sitting with your family to decide where you want to go for your next vacation. These tools coming handy everywhere, right? Again, a mindset is a mindset. And once you adopt it, you can't get rid of it. Hmm. So there's a big parallel there. I've been meditating for probably about 30 years. On and off, I'm not an orthodox guy. It's hard for me to, you know, say I have been meditating every day for the past 30 years. But I was introduced to meditation 30 years ago and have been, it has been part of my life. And at different stages, it's either had, you know, a bigger part of my daily routine or a smaller part of my daily routine or maybe at certain points I've had it be a twice a week thing, but it's become so integrated into what I do that I can do it for five minutes in the waiting room to the dentist. You mm -hmm. know, it doesn't have to be up on the top of the mountain with incense burning around me. Although that helps, right? <laughs> so, so there's, you know, the, the whole point is 
integrating it into one's life. And the way I see it is that, you know, the point of meditation as a as a specific case, but just kind of personal growth, which is where meditation falls for me, it's, you know, how how might we expand our consciousness? What are the different ways to do it? We know that meditation is one great way to do that, uh, but there's so many ways. One of the beautiful parallels between that and creative work is that the the challenge for a creative person, for an artist or for a group like we were that day in San Francisco, how might we as a group expand our consciousness to allow new and unexpected ideas to come in? And there's the this quote that I always bring up that, you know, Steve Jobs said that the brilliant people he's worked with have made connections between things that exist. It's not that they came up with something out of nowhere, but that the very creative people just make these connections. Hmm. And the more we can expand our consciousness, the more we can see things that might connect that others haven't. Hmm. And that's where the originality comes in. So that's for me the, the connection between the two and very much we want to walk into a brainstorming session with what's called often, you know, a blank page. The practice of meditation is clearing your mind and making it as quiet as possible. Hmm. So there's, for me, they're, they're very much connected. Well, something that you said kind of resonates too, is that when you talk about design thinking, which I'd love to dive into as well, but it's a, it's a framework and a way to approach life and problems. And I think that's common to meditation. It's not a, a moment. It's like a framework and a way to to think and approach um, your life. And so I think they lend themselves well to each other. As I was researching for this call, especially as it relates to design thinking, and you talk about reinforcing empathy um, and falling in love with your problems, I think that there's a there's a strong connection there between what you're seeking and doing in meditation and, and this this style of, of design thinking and creative thought. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I also want to say that, you know, as people, we love rituals. We ritualize everything. We have our morning coffee or we have a song we listen to at a certain time. Rituals are very important. And the ritual of sitting for meditation anchors the state of being in meditation, right? So again, we have our meditation pillow. And we might have the incense we use. Some people meditate with some background music. Others have a mantra. A mantra is also a ritual, right? And design thinking is also ritualizing creativity. We have these very, and I remember at the beginning, we started again in the 90s, kind of preaching, brainstorming to our clients at the IDEO we had these rituals we'd go through. So again, post-its and Sharpies are a ritual. We had at IDO, we had the brainstorming rules literally written on the wall around mm. the room. And when you go into the room, everybody sits there and the facilitator goes over all those rules one at a time and reminds everybody 
what needs to be done. Frameworks like design thinking and frameworks like let me show you how to do vipassana or whatever meditation you're into are ways for us to ritualize behaviors in order to help us learn and integrate them so they're part of who we are. Mm. And so, again, parallels are there everywhere. Maybe just for people who are listening that might not be familiar with design thinking, because I feel like we've touched on the term a couple times, but and I've had a chance to attend some D-School Stanford design thinking classes. Maybe can you just define that term and, and share a little bit about what it means to you? So I'm happy to share what it means to me. I hesitate to define it because it's already been redefined and in a sense personalized and in certain cases hijacked by other people who use the term in different ways. Mm -hmm. I'll say that for me what it is, it grew out of the impact of design as a profession, the impact that that had on Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s, right? What happened, designers came in and helped engineers and entrepreneurs understand that at the end of any innovation process, there are people. What designers brought in is the consideration for the experience that the design process has on people. When we create a new gadget or a new piece of software, or we design a new hospital clinic or a new airplane, in the end, we're going to impact somebody's experience. And the designers brought that in because without them, we always had engineers really in love with their own brilliant discoveries. And they would just celebrate the gadget itself, right? Mm. So design thinking just introduced that whole human element the human experience into it. And that's where the term empathy comes up so often Hmm. because the starting point for an innovation process should be empathy for whoever will be impacted by whatever we're doing. So if we have an idea for a new cup of coffee, how, you know, a new way for packaging coffee so it's drinkable, we start from Understanding people who drink coffee, what's the experience of coffee? Again, is coffee there as an energizer? Is coffee there as a ritual to connect between people? Is coffee there as a, you know, pick me up in the morning? What is it? Starting from there, that's where the inspiration Hmm. for innovation comes from the design thinking perspective. So we understand people's needs. And then we as a team decide for what need do we want to optimize our new product? And I use product here with a capital P. Everything's a product. A slideshow is a product. A new insurance program, health insurance program is a product. A play is a product. And the iPhone 11 is a product. For me, anything that people create is a product. And so how might we start with people and then shape it to meet their needs in an optimal manner? 
there's something that came up for me in preparing for this session that I'm really grateful for you guys for asking me to join you because I've never made that connection quite so specifically. As I told you at IDEO, we used to have the brainstorming rules written up on the wall. And today, whenever I go into a, a workshop, whether it's with an executive board or with a team that's trying to solve a problem, I have a big poster with the rules for brainstorming that we hang up on the, the wall there. And these rules, I've always said they're, in a sense, they're at the core of what creative work is about. And if you find a company, and that's, I think, what made me fall in love with IDEO when I just walked in there was, here was a bunch of people who naturally knew these rules, and th these were the rules by which everybody interacted. And the rules go defer judgment, build on the ideas of others, one conversation at a time. There, there are six or seven rules, there are different versions of that. The first rule is always defer judgment. Okay, and that's and you'll see many versions of that. I have to give credit here to Charles Osborne, who was the man who came up with the term brainstorming. Hmm. Uh, there's a big advertising firm called BBDO. O is Osborne. In the 50s, he came up with a term. He was really interested in how people are creative. And he started studying the creative people in his office to understand how people were creative. He came up with the fact that you need to have some rules. If you're bringing people into a room, you should have rules of behavior. It's not just free for all, anarchy, throw out ideas. And so deferred judgment is the first rule in all versions of the rules of brainstorming. Innovationship, when I formed it in 2012, we came out with our own version of the rules and we have the standard rules, but the first rule in our list is listen. And I'll explain why that's important. It's important because a brainstorming session is about bringing people together so that they can inspire each other for new ideas. Hmm. Okay? If you, you guys have an idea for a new type of watch, you can send me an email and say, Leon, please, can you think about a watch and send us an email with a list of ideas you have for the new watch, right? I know my own ideas. I can sit here and I can think about it and I can do my own kind of brainstorming work and come up with as many ideas as I can and send them to you. However, when we get together in a room, the reason for us to get together is that I can listen to you and something that you say can inspire a thought in me that I never would have thought of myself. And then I say something, here we are, I said something that I wasn't expecting to say, and then Sean picks up on that, mm. and he says something, and suddenly we've built, and build on the ideas of others is one of the rules there. But the whole thing is sitting on the basis of walking to the room, and you have to listen to other people. Most people think when we invite them into a brainstorming session, 
that they should be walking into the room and just coming in with as many ideas as we can. And the first thing we say to them is, bring your ideas in, but really listen to other people because that's where there'll be a spark of something that you couldn't have expected yourself. Meditation is about listening. Mm. And meditation is about deferring judgment. Mm. It's like sit quietly, truly listen internally, and whatever comes up, don't judge it. Mm -hmm. Just let the thoughts flow through you. Listen, listen. If a thought comes up, don't judge it. It's a good thought. It's a bad thought. Don't judge yourself. I should be listening. I shouldn't be listening. Just sit there quietly and listen. And this is the same with a brainstorming session. The first rule is listen. The second one is defer judgment. If somebody says something that for you seems to be completely crazy, there's no way we can ever get that done too expensive, too complicated, too far-fetched. Don't judge. Just sit there and listen. If you get an idea, you can say it and build on it. But listening and deferring judgment are really the same, one and the same for both of these activities. That's beautiful. Another big thing that design thinking does, as I said, we get inspired by observing people in the world, finding out what needs they have. So someone like me, I was hired into IDEO as a cognitive psychologist. Colleagues of mine who came in and were in my human factors team were anthropologists, sociologists. So today it's already a given that any company that wants to innovate has these soft science people as part of the innovation team, right? And what we do is we go out into the world and we listen. We sit there. So if I'm designing a new medical product, I would go to somebody who maybe is a diabetic. And rather than interview them on the phone, I'd go to their home and sit there with them and listen. Say, what's it like to be a diabetic? Tell me, what did you have for breakfast today? Could you show me where do you store your medication? What is the process you go through? Okay, so show me. So how, how do you measure your blood sugar level? Okay, and then, so what do you do? How do you throw away the syringe after you've injected yourself? So the process of creative innovation, a la design thinking, starts with going out into the world and listening and observing. And again, there's this place so much of that's connected to meditation, which is mm. non-judgmental listening. Whatever people do, we can learn from it. And it, it really ends up, I mean, I cannot count the number of times in my own experience of over 20 years, but also all my colleagues, where we've gone out on observations in preparation for a project, and we were surprised in a way that was just off the charts. You go there expecting to see people do a certain thing, and then there's a tiny little workaround that someone in their home has done around getting around a piece of software that isn't working well, that you can go back to your client and say, Here's an opportunity. Mm. People keep putting post-its up on their screen 
because your software or your competitor's software isn't doing this function for them. If you include this in your software, you're going to be fulfilling a need and people will want your product. So it's in the listening and in the opening up that those insights and inspirations come in. Come on, what a gem. It's in the listening that those insights come through. So good. Thank you guys so much for listening to part one. Yeah, we really enjoyed putting this one together. It was a real privilege to speak with Leon. If you like this one, then episode nine will be part two of this conversation. So like Reed said, we had a blast putting this together. We're super honored and we're excited for part two. If you enjoyed it as much as we did, then we'll see you back here for episode nine.